Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. It's another week and another biblical passage for us to explore. The goal each week is to gain some insight and application that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Well, this week we are going to continue on in Luke chapter 16, and we're going to take in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We have been in Luke chapters 15 and 16 for some weeks now, And that helps us even observe the general context and the flow of thought as we arrive at our story for this week. Someone once made an acronym for the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, as basic instructions before leaving earth. That is indeed the Word of God. It reveals truth to us that we otherwise would not know and tells us of what we need to know before leaving earth. The acronym's a little cheesy, I know, but still a good thought to remember. Another statement we sometimes hear from time to time is, man, I wish I knew then what I know now, looking back at some point in our life in the past. Well, our passage in Luke 16 will be of great help with this. Jesus is basically saying today in our passage, hey, I'm telling you now what you wish you knew now. So let's uh, get into our passage. It's Luke chapter 16, and as you know, last week we studied the parable of the unjust steward in verses 1 through 14 or so, and uh, we did pick up a little bit of the interlude as our passage in the rich young ruler will start at verse 19, so just a quick review of verses 14 through 19. Um, We remember that Jesus had just had this unjust uh, steward parable where we had a servant who was pretty much dishonest, and he was going to get fired for his dishonesty, and so he made some deals with some people that owed his master some money, and he said, here, pay half, and then we'll write it off. As he was thinking ahead, and he was thinking about when he was going to get sacked, and how he was preparing for his future, and the master did not commend him for his veiled theft. theft. Uh, For all we know, he was maybe still held accountable for that, but he did commend this unjust steward for how he could think ahead and have anticipation of his future. And then the application was made, the sons of this world have that kind of shrewdness, and the sons of of light or the believer should have that same kind of shrewdness, anticipation, thinking ahead as they think of their future, which is spiritual, otherworldly, and in the kingdom, and therefore function as God and Jesus Christ have been, what they're like, and what they teach, and what they say, even regarding mammon, mainly being willing to have generosity, show compassion, meet the needs of others, and they will show appreciation to you in that kingdom that is coming. And then Jesus ended that by saying, we are not able to serve two masters. Either we will love the one and hate the other, or hate the one, love the other. So you cannot serve God and mammon or money. 
And with that, in verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, the text says, heard these things and derided Jesus and mocked him and sneered at him. And all of this was stemming because of, from their wealth, but actually we see they were lovers of money. Now, that's a lot different than saying they had money or were wealthy. In fact, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, Paul warns us, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So essentially, this is idolatry. And the Pharisees had a wrong thinking of money, uh, very much almost like a prosperity gospel. The more money you had, the more you were doing well and successful and prestigious you were. And even they believed that God was smiling on you at a better chance of, of benefits with God and so forth. Well, when Jesus was saying what he was saying to pay it forward and just... Uh, you know, do good to people without any expectation of being paid back, etc. They mocked and sneered that. Jesus then laid it out for the Pharisees plainly in verse 15 of Luke 16. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what's highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so he's telling them that they have self-importance and pride in this pecking order that's not biblical or spiritual at all. And they justify themselves. And they have arrogance and pride. Then Jesus cautioned them even further. He said, hey, the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. And since John's come, the, that time the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. It's what's on people's minds. It's the emphasis. And, and you have been missing that teaching on the kingdom. But at any rate, he said, it's easier for heaven or earth to pass away than for one uh, uh, tittle of the law to fail. So, He's saying, look, when John was preaching and speaking and teaching the kingdom, you ignored him. When there's spiritual authority and biblical authority, Old Testament scriptures, you don't take it seriously, and you create your own things, and you have a disregard for scripture and for that authority. In fact, for example, he said in verse 18, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her is divorced from her husband commits adultery. And what he's saying here is just they had a view of, of marriage and divorce, and you could remarry and so forth. And he said, no, I'm telling you, this is the word of God. This is what God says. And your whole process is different. So he points out the law and the prophets, how they were until John the Baptist. And he points out that that's authoritative. And there is now opposition to the kingdom, and namely it's coming from these Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, they've become accustomed to ignoring Old Testament authority, and they had gotten accustomed to replacing the law with variations of their own teaching. And this divorce remarriage was a specific example. So they had a love of money, lovers of money, they were prideful and self-important, and they had a disregard for the Old Testament scriptures, all laid out with verses 14 through 18. And all of this will be displayed now in our parable story of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus is now about to tell. A story full of surprises and some obvious reversals of what would be expected. First of all, a question to resolve, is Luke 16, 19 through 31 a parable? And there's uh, uh, some uh, uncertainty on that. Most commentators will say that it is, but uh, there is some reason to think it may not be. But namely, one of the things is Jesus uses a name. It's about Lazarus, and so parables never involve a name. But the use of Lazarus in this story is clearly, uh, really is symbolic to show something about what that name means as it relates to Lazarus. Um, but a parable is always based on actual things in the physical world, you know, wheat, tares, sheep, oil, land. 
lamps, and then they're used in this parable to illustrate a higher reality. But here in this story, uh, Jesus actually talks about Hades and that reality of the other world. And so that's why, uh, what would be it? What would it be picturing or illustrating? So it seems to be more of a real uh, set of events and things. So whether it's a parable or not, it certainly is parabolic in style. It certainly has some symbolic things and language in it. Um, so we could just say clearly, though, it's a story that Jesus is using. It's understood as a parable that realistically portrays the fate of those who have rejected the Lord. It tells us truth specifically about some things in the afterlife. So. Here's our story beginning in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So we see in these three verses the beggar and the rich man in their life here on earth. And so two men compared. We're going to see two men always compared and with some surprising reversals. And what we see first is the rich man was clothed in purple, fine linen, a description of wealth and affluence. And it says he fared sumptuously every day. Uh, Kenneth Wiest in his New Testament paraphrase says, living luxuriously and in magnificent style every day. So today he would be the one, you know, with great clothes and the newest cell phone and uh, an expensive watch and nice wheels. And he was successful, luxuriously living. He had a fine home because we saw that Lazarus was laid at his gate each day. That's an indication of a fine piece of property or a mansion. And we see that he was indifferent to Lazarus because Lazarus was laid there every day. And uh, we never see the rich man communicating, ministering, doing anything no contact at all with this beggar that's outside his gate. Uh, he had many needs. Lazarus must have been pretty unseemly to the rich man. Like, we just don't want people that are crippled or anything like that. You know, they're unseemly. Uh, clearly, we see the rich man's lacking compassion. We also note that he's Jewish because of some things that are going to come later in the story. He's talking to Father Abraham. And what's important here is he is not named. It's just another self-righteous individual, self-seeking, indifferent to the suffering or the needs of others. Uh, the rich and famous, we know they're well-known on this side of earth, um, and they're applauded in this life. But, you know, you want to go where everybody knows your name, thinking of cheers, right? And uh, where he's going, he's not even named. Now, his identity, of course, is wrapped up in his wealth, his success, and the spiritual pecking order, how, how he's important and so forth. This is what defines him. It shows us what he loves. And finally, he's going to be a rep he's representing the Pharisees here in this story because the illustrative point of the parable was the mocking the, the Pharisees had of Jesus and his teaching about mammon in verse uh, 14. And so he's, this is what triggers this story, and Jesus is now uh, dealing with those scoffing Pharisees and what they thought. Again, there's no break or anything in the whole chapter, so this is all one continuous flow of, uh, of Jesus teaching sometimes to the disciples and now this story to the Pharisees. Pharisees. So he's just continuing on the lesson he gave about using your mammon wisely, anticipating for the future where friends will be appreciative of you when you enter the kingdom because of how you paid it forward. Okay, so he's, the idea is use your present advantages here generously in service of others. Good results will follow. And the Pharisees scoffed. So now we have a picture of the Pharisees and this wealthy, successful, rich man. And then we have him compared to Lazarus, the beggar. He's the beggar. He is named, though, 
Jesus knows the name of the poor man in the street. His name is Lazarus. In fact, his name is significant to the story because uh, it's symbolic even because the word Lazarus, the name Lazarus, means God helps or whom God helps. Naming him gives him more recognition than the rich man, which is the intended effect in this story. And his name draws us into his humanity. He's a person. He's more than his circumstances. He, someone birthed him and loved him. Someone named him. His identity is Lazarus, whom God helps, and he is known. But in the story, he's full of sores, which means he has medical needs as well as he's crippled as he has to be laid at the gate every day. He's crippled, a passive verb. He was laid at the rich man's gate, meaning someone did this. There was a routine. They would leave him there every day, something perhaps retrieve him and such. Uh, Lazarus then is diseased, he's disabled, and he's dependent. He is not the lazy guy trying to mooch off the system. He desired even to be fed with the crumbs from the rich man's table. Maybe he succeeded now and then, but he certainly never had a satisfied hunger, and he's competing with the dogs. But then we see next that only the dogs are seeking to meet his needs. The dogs would lick his sores. And if you know dogs, dogs, when they have wounds, they they lick their wounds, both on the surface and beneath the surface even. Um, And wounds seem to draw the attention of dogs' tongues. And they seek to soothe and to heal, and they lick their own wounds, and they will do the same for people. If you've ever had a dog, they do that as they're out of affection and out of a way of trying to, you know, they think they're helping you with your wound. So here they're ministering, these dogs, licking his sores. They're the only ones who are showing any uh, uh, the least bit of care and attention. Now, the rich man obviously ignored Lazarus, had to step over him or around him every day, goes in and out, never, you know, tend to his needs or anything. And it's ironic that very soon we're going to see that it's the rich man's tongue that's going to be in need of great need, as we think of the dog's tongues ministering to Lazarus. John Calvin wrote in one of his commentaries, he said, What could be more monstrous than to see the dogs taking charge of a man to whom his neighbor is paying no attention? And what is more, to see the very crumbs of bread refused to a man perishing of hunger while the dogs are giving him the service of their tongues for the purpose of healing his sores? What could be more monstrous than that, Calvin wrote. Now, the Jew, this man, uh, the beggar, Lazarus, was also Jewish. We know that because also he's going to be referring to Father Abraham. And Jesus, the storyteller, then has painted a picture of very two, two extremes, the rich man and the beggar. Now, the two men at death is the next verse, just verse 22. It simply says, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So here's, they both die, as something is common to all humanity, you're going to die, but they're ever so different in their death. Death is not a respecter of persons, everyone will die, and the story as told here, we see the order is reversed. We started with the rich man and then Lazarus, now for this part of when they die, we start with Lazarus and then the rich man. Lazarus, he dies, no burial is mentioned, no funeral either. I mean, who would attend? Uh, maybe just the dogs. As for burial, it doesn't say he was buried, but it was against all custom to allow anyone to remain unburied, so we could assume perhaps there was some uh, charitable burial or something perhaps, but it's certainly not mentioned it's left out. Um, The rich man, though, at death, he died and he was buried. 
And we can see that was pointed out by Jesus. There likely was maybe a funeral and a pompous ceremony or perhaps with it. Imagine the funeral, the who's who that might show up and the important people coming, paying their respects and everyone praising that rich man and everyone even preaching, putting him in the kingdom or heaven. Uh, and the rich man, he'd get his attaboys and he's a good fellow at his funeral. Again, Jesus, as the story portrays extremes, shows how different the lives of these two men were, and then the two men at death, there was a difference. And then there's a difference with the two men after death, as we now move into the, the core of the story in verse 23 of Luke 16. And being in torments and Hades, we're going to continue with the rich man, Jesus is, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. So, we see this is not what we would have expected in this story. We see Lazarus um, after death. One of the things that uh, we forgot to mention, I'm sorry, was in Luke chapter 16, 22, 22, that the angels carried Lazarus to Abraham's bosom. When that Lazarus died, the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. And to be there, this is in, in paradise, this is far better than any burial or ceremony, to be carried personally by the angels to Abraham's bosom. He goes out the life on, uh, in, out the door as a beggar and a loser with no honor or a distinction, and he enters the next life a prominent citizen with Abraham. This is the only time we see angels carrying someone away. And of course, what we assume is they're carrying away his soul after death because there is no resurrections yet in the chronological timetable of re resurrections. And it reminds us of the significance of his name, God helps. Now, what is Abraham's bosom? It's in Hades. Hades is the term for the underworld. The underworld just is the place that Jewish beliefs had that all souls would go to, where the dead were gathered into a general tarrying place. And Jesus is going to uh, embellish on that a little bit and to give us a little more detail about Hades here in our story. But Abraham's bosom can be taken um, as the name for this place, uh, Hades, as it has two sections. One is considered to be Abraham's bosom or paradise, and the the other side is what we would just call torments or a place of torment. The unrighteous side would be labeled a place of torment from verse 28. Um, so this is the idea of, uh, of, of Abraham's bosom. If it's not a title of the place, it could be instead a reference to the title or name of the righteous side. It could be referring instead to being a place uh, to being placed in Abraham's personal care. Lazarus, who previously would not have known care, now is directly in the, in the place of comfort and care. And believe me, if the Pharisees are hearing this, they're going to, as they are hearing it, they're going to be outraged. This lowly beggar, spiritually unclean, sinful loser, detested, and he's in Abraham's bosom, and you've got this rich man who you didn't even name. Uh, he's in torments. Another thing we see about Abraham, uh, Lazarus, in Abraham's bosom, and all through the, the story now, the parable, the rest of it, he, he, we never hear him. He's silent. He's silent all through this story, before death, after death. Now we see the rich man in his death as we see that he realizes he's in torments in Hades in verse 23. Now, Abraham's bosom, again, is divided into these two portions, and the righteous side would be where 
the righteous would go like Lazarus in the story. Luke 23, 43, if you remember, he said to the thief on the cross that said, Remember me, Lord. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As when they physically die, they would go to this section of Hades where it's, where it's considered paradise or Abraham's bosom. Um, and they're all still, these souls would be there because Jesus had not died yet and had not paid for their sins. He's about to do, he's going to do that on the cross. And after he pays for their sins, then their, their souls could go to heaven as they would have been redeemed. Um, on the other side is torments. And this is a word though, that implies a state of great suffering and distress due to adversity. Remember, this is before the resurrection, and these are souls. So how is the rich man who's, a, who's now in torments and is being tormented, how is he anguished? Well, it would have to be mental and spiritual. Uh, and this is the idea then of where he is in torments. Now, he lifted his eyes, it says in verse 23. This is a term that specifically means like making an assessment. So he immediately knows. And this helps us understand his torment and his anguish right away, his horror, because he knows where he is. And the verbs that are assigned to him in this process are the rich man. He died, he was buried, he lifted his eyes. And immediately, just five seconds after his death, we understand. No pit stops, no other actions, nothing in between. He now knows where he is, and his opportunity is no more. And the Pharisees listening to this would be outraged again. But are they listening? That would be what would be best for them. Well, the first thing he does in verse 24, we saw, is he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in such and minister to me. Let Lazarus depart from paradise and come over to my awful side, is the mercy that he's seeking. This is actually self-condemning for the rich man because it's clear now he knows Lazarus by name. He points him out by name. This now is, this part of the story might be indirectly pointing back to how Lazarus was comforted by the tongues of the dogs. And now this rich man is seeking for Lazarus to come and comfort him with the tip of his finger, some water on his tongue to do the very thing for him that he would not do for Lazarus. On earth, no luxury was too extravagant for the rich man, but now no relief was too small. His lack of mercy on earth finds a miserable echo here in Hades. So he was being tormented, he says, in verse 24 and going into 25. He says, I am tormented in this flame. I am in torments. Now, this word is different uh, in verse 24 and, and, and in 25 for torment, and it's a different Greek word, but it has a similar meaning. It's only used four times. It's tormented here uh, twice in Luke 16, 24 and 16, 25. Luke also uses it in Luke 2, 48, and it's translated anxiously, and it's also translated sorrowing in Acts 20. Uh, some of the lexicons would say this is to be distressed terribly to the point of mental and spiritual agony, anguish. Some of the other translations have it as I am distressed in this flame or I am in agony in this flame. I am in anguish in these flames. Or numerous translations have any one of those combinations. So he's in a total state of mental and spiritual anguish. And it's his soul. This is a, not with resurrected bodies. This is his soul. In fact, Psalm 6.3 uses this concept when it says, My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? What is troubling David? His soul. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 38, he said to them as he was going to go be, a, be alone and to pray, he says to his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here with and watch with me. 
So we see that this is a word that means being troubled and exceedingly sorrowful. What troubled David in Psalm 6? What troubles Jesus in Matthew 26? It's circumstances. Jesus was about to face the cross. Why is this rich man so vexed and sorrowful and, 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 and tormented? His circumstances. Because he knows. He's like, it's a flame here. He, he knows. He's convicted. He is highly troubled. Remember, no one is in actual hell yet. The real hell, what we call hell, is the lake of fire. That doesn't have any people in it until after the thousand-year millennial kingdom, according to Revelation 20. So this fire would likely then be symbolic, representing the mental anguish and torturous uh, um, uh, sorrow and hopelessness that he has. So remember that uh, he says, Father, he says, Father Abraham, sin Lazarus. Now, Abraham answers the rich man very interestingly in verse 25. He says, um, but Abraham said back to him, son, he calls him son. He was a, a child of the covenant. He was a Jew. Uh, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Just a total reversal. What a great thing to think of Lazarus being comforted. How little he would have experienced or understood that in his life. And now he's got a full time. But notice Abraham says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received. The idea is you fully received your good things. And there's a reference then to how you probably collected and just consumed all your good things. No eye for eternity. No thinking of others. You just consumed and did that. So that would be a picture then again of the very point that led into this parable of not anticipating, not being shrewd, not thinking in terms of a spiritual realm of how God would want us to consider mammon. Well, Lazarus is comforted. And then we see in verse 26 that Abraham says this, and besides all this, meaning this is awful, isn't it? But besides this, between us, and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So besides all this, you can't even pass back and forth. This is permanent. Your condition's permanent. And that's an extremely sobering thought. He then has to point out that there is no excuse here for this rich man, because he's going to say a couple of requests here, and both of them kind of indirectly are throwing shade on God. He said, the rich man now, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus back. I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Send them back, almost like because what we have, what that we've heard, it isn't quite enough. It wasn't enough. Abraham, though, answers that in 29 and said, They have Moses and the prophets. Remember, there's a reference to them back in 1614 about John the Baptist and Moses and the prophets and the law. They have the Old Testament scriptures, authoritative. Let them hear them. Verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he's rather wishful thinking. Do you think they'd even recognize Lazarus or notice that he had been dead? But if they go back, if we have a greater manifestation, a miracle, but implied again, we haven't had enough. We need more. Verse 31, but he said, Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one who rose from the dead. And so the rich man has no excuse. He realizes that. And the, the, he realizes that the Moses and the prophets are enough. 
Uh, they, his brothers need to hear them and listen to them. But if they had his attitude that he has when, before he died, then they wouldn't because he was arrogant and he, he was already blowing out the authority of scriptures. But the point here is Abraham is saying, look, the scriptures are sufficient, they're final, they're authoritative, they're reliable, and they're true. And they give the remedy and they describe what is needed. So the problem is not a lack of miracle. The problem is being willing to listen. So this rich man could not help those he left behind. He sure had a desire to. He wants them to be warned and thus avoid his terrible fate. He sees the issue now. If you do, they'll repent. Ah, he understands. That implies that he knows he should have repented on that side of eternity, on the other side, the physical side of life on earth, rather. Change their mind is what that means. Take in truth and let that truth adjust you. So does the rich man know what the problem is? Oh, yes, he does. Without any explanation, he knows he's on this side of the, of the great gulf. He knows why he's there. He even talks about repentance. This implies his own guilt. He gets it. And he's into evangelism now, even. The problem is, is it's too late, and he knows it. And this also shows that the dead cannot help us nor harm us. Um, sometimes cultures believe that, you know, the ancestors of the dead have these influences. But notice he knew, as John Cross wrote in his book by this name, quote, he knew that his five brothers were not right with God and wanted them to be warned, but in spite of his desire to communicate an urgent warning to his still living brothers, he could not connect with them. The Bible is clear that our departed ancestors can neither help nor harm us, nor can they communicate with us. They cannot hear or speak to us. However, demons can pose as departed ancestors and, and, and a, in a fake way lead us astray. It is also worth noting, John, what Cross goes on to say, uh, that the rich man did not want to be joined by his brothers upon their death. The idea of parting with one's friends in hell is foreign to the Bible. Those in hell would not wish it on their worst enemies. So as we see the gist of the story, let's wrap up some observations here we can quick make about hell. Number one, it's a very real place. It's literal. Hades here. This is literal. It is a place, secondly, of consciousness. The rich man was aware of things, and he knew where he was, and he knew who Abraham was. It's a place that's a separated place. As he said to Abraham when he saw him, he was afar off. And then we understood there's this great gulf and no passing to and from. It was separated. Uh, fourthly, it's a place clearly then of mental anguish. There's no comfort here. He says, have mercy on me. There's no mercy here. There is this mention of flame, symbolic. Yep, probably here in this case, in, in, in this passage. Uh, but the sign and the symbol, uh, when you have something, the sign that any symbol is always pointing to, the symbol is less than the actual full reality. So this is a, 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 a really um, painful, sorrowful experience. Um, the Hades here is a haunting place because Abraham says to him, remember back when you had it so easy and remember this memory of ease on earth, remembering all that you had and what you lost the tr and especially the truth you rejected and you didn't listen and you didn't repent. And it's for, you know, you're, you're stuck here now and it's an inescapable place. Versus, as uh, Abraham pointed out, you can't cross back and forth. Uh, there's no parole. There's no pardon. This is an eternal sentence. The Bible knows nothing of reincarnation or second chances or post-death transfers out. Uh, Job 27, verse 8, Job reminds us, For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he may gain much, if God takes away his life? There's no escape. There's no more opportunity. It's over. 
And so because of this, hell is a hopeless place. Hope is part of God's common grace that befalls on all of us, whether we're saved or not. Hope is what keeps you going in the worst of times because, you know, things can change and you're looking for that change. Hope is anchored in the future. You know, uh, like the, the famous quote, this too shall pass. Future hope, hope in the future propels us now here. Proverbs eleven seven reminds us when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish and the hope of the unjust perishes. Proverbs 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes us sick. Where there is no hope, where hope isn't realized, it makes you sick, it says. Hell is where hope is run out, and only misery remains forever. And so you can see the rich man's desperation. In fact, he says, Abraham, Father Abraham, I beg you. Who's the beggar now? What a change. And so we see, that he rejected truth. In fact, John three sixteen through 19 talks about how God so loved the world and he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And verse 19 says, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We don't want to listen. We don't want to hear about that light because it might convict us or change it, have challenged our thinking or our ways. And that leads us to the last and most important observation about hell. It's an avoidable place. Yes, it's an avoidable place. No one need go there because God so loved every individual, all of us, including you. And God gave Jesus, he gave his only son as the solution to the penalty of our sin. He died on the cross. He was our personal substitute and he took upon himself the guilt of our sin fully. And God punished Jesus in our place and his justice is now satisfied so Christ could call out, it is finished. What is left to pay for? All of your sins were taken care of on the cross. There's nothing left for you to try to get rid of or a church or a ritual to try to remove. It's finished. Christ did it. And there's one simple condition to meet. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, whosoever believes, is convinced, has been persuaded that God loves them and Jesus died for them and has risen again and is offering life. God is offering this gift of life out of love and it's by his grace and his kindness. You just believe. Be persuaded. God so loved you. Say, yes, I believe. And the result, whosoever believes will not perish, will not be in Hades, will not be like the rich man, never, but has everlasting life. Instead, you possess what Lazarus was entered into and that paradise. Total rescue, total avoidance. That's why 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 19 through 21 reminds us that this, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to you and I the word of reconciliation, the word of friendship. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus took our sin, and he exchanged that and gave us his righteousness. We stand in perfect righteousness before God in a positional reality that's out of this world.
You see, you and I are like Lazarus. We're beggars. We have nothing. We were without life, without hope. And here as spiritual beggars, broken, we have all that we needed in Christ. And that's why Hebrews 9.27 reminds us that it is appointed for men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Judgment is coming. It's certain and it's real for all of us. But we don't have to be on the wrong side when we wake up on the other side of eternity. It's a free gift. It's available right here, right now. And so the story ends. We leave the rich man to his forever ruin. We are comforted to know Lazarus is going to have forever comfort. The moral of the story is not that poor people go to paradise and rich people go to hell. One of the great contradictions to that is Abraham himself, a very wealthy man, is in paradise. So that's not the point. No, the moral is that the deceitfulness of riches and the love of money are indicators here of a heart that's hardened to God and truth that we reject. We don't take it seriously. We don't hear his warnings. We have perhaps pride. And that mentality then shows itself in our obsession for wealth or our imbalance over mammon that leads to a lack of compassion to those who are around us and those who are in need and meeting the needs of others and thinking ahead and anticipating future, the real place we are going to spend eternity. And that is what led into the story, and in it we learned some things about the afterlife as well. And so that's our story, Luke 16. Some closing thoughts. Just remember, people go to hell via their own choice. God isn't sending anyone to hell. We choose that destiny as someone clings to what cannot actually save them. The wrong trust object, the wrong faith, the wrong idolatry, money, mammon, popularity, riches, whatever, religion, ritual. But grace is this undeserved favor. It sees us as all Lazarus-like beggars. Can we see that? And can we just embrace the Lord and take what he gives us freely through Christ? God is seeking to woo the entire world to persuade us to be rescued. There's no need to spend eternity separated from him. Even though we're obstinate, foolish, and sinful, God loves us, and he desires for us to know him and respond to him, and he will forgive us and redeem us and give us new life and give us hope right now. Why are you holding out? I encourage you, would you believe on him now? Whosoever believes on him will not perish. God is not holding your sins against you. Be reconciled to him. And don't be discouraged. This may have been a heavy uh, lesson, but just think how Jesus is with these Pharisees who were so obstinate. Yeah, look at his patience and the time and his willingness to engage with them and correct them and speak to them. Uh, from Luke 15, three parables, how God searches for them and loves them and shows sacrifice to them. Here in chapter 16, there's more truth about change your mind about how you view money or divorce or the scriptures or the authority of scripture and pay it forward, etc. There's more parables coming and uh, for the rest of Luke. And then there's the whole crucifixion where there was darkness all over the earth and an earthquake and a veil that was rent in two and this resurrection, more signs, more evidence, more truth. Jesus is unrelenting in terms of his desire to get this message out and to convince and to show people. And you know, people did get saved. People did respond. Pharisees even did. Nicodemus did, as we know in John uh, chapter 20, 20, whatever it was. He's the one who arranged for the proper burial of Jesus Christ. We know other Pharisees in John 12 believed on him. One by one, people are listening. People did consider. People did put their faith in Christ. People did and have avoided this fate. How about you? He's searching. He's wanting to convince you. If you're listening and you're still listening to this, then you're considering. 
And so just allow these truths to wash over you. God is patient. He is not slow like we concern his promise in 2 Peter 3.9 would say. He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why not change your mind? Put your faith in Christ and hear the amazing story of this gift that we don't deserve, that he gives to people he loves, though we don't deserve his love, that he doesn't want any of us to end up separated from him. And there's nothing easier than believing and being and putting our faith in Christ. So be encouraged. God is active. He's pursuing. He is wooing the world to avoid that fate. Remember the where we started, the Bible? basic instructions before leaving earth it makes sense remember we said i wish i knew then what i know now our passage of study then has helped us jesus is now saying i'm telling you now what you will wish you knew now let's pray father we thank you for these truths thank you for the simplicity of salvation thank you for the example of lazarus and the rich man we can look and think and compare who are we thank you for the uh, comfort and the guarantee and the eternal life found that lazarus has may we have it too for anyone listening i pray they'd be convinced even today put their faith in christ thank you that we can study these things we praise you now in jesus name amen Well, that's all for this week. Sorry, it was just a tad long. But uh, hey, remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.